0: Hey everybody, I'm glad to be back. I was in Montana last week, I got to go on a hunting trip, so that was fun. Michael taught for me, but today we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. Um, if you're new to the church, we, in the last four weeks um, prior to my leaving, we were doing an exploring of uh, Jesus and his character and nature, uh, but we have been over the course of the year studying the book of Acts, and today we're going to be jumping back into Acts chapter 18, so I'm going to invite in your Bible to Acts chapter 18, and um, make your way there. I'm going to pray with you, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for those who have taken the time to be here this morning. Uh, I pray your blessing and your presence would rest on each person in this moment, that we will engage you in a way that we perhaps didn't anticipate, Father, is a, a desire of ours. We, we come here to encounter you. It's not just to sing and not just to shake hands and to exchange stories, but that we would have a, a real, a visceral encounter with you, Father. That can only happen because your Holy Spirit would intercede, that you would be our teacher and our guide, that these would go beyond mere human words, Father, but that You would connect with us in a way that only You can. So we invite that experience right now. We invite You to lead us and guide us and teach us through Your Word. Your Word is holy, Your Word is true, and it is just. And so we look into it so that You will guide us. We invite that and ask for that in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Somebody here that's familiar with uh, the term Murphy's Law. Would you shout out for me the definition of Murphy's Law? Yeah, yeah. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Kind of an addendum. Um, Murphy said, "When the circumstances are right, the environment's right. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong." Um, Mr. Murphy, actually, Doctor Murphy was. a physicist at Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and he was frustrated with what one of his co-workers did when he he wired an engine wrong, and Murphy found himself saying, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. One of his co-workers wrote it down. Well, he was actually playing on a thought that's as ancient as time. He recognizes we live in a fallen world, and things will continue to spiral downwards, and so if there's an opportunity for it to go wrong, it's going to go wrong. And that kind of environment produces a degree of opposition. And most of us recognize we come up against opposition on a regular basis. Many of us fail to stop and think, though, that opposition produces something. Opposition produces discouragement. And we know that we mentally assent to that. Mentally, we can agree with that at 11.29 in the morning sitting here in a comfortable environment, you say, yeah, well, that makes sense. If I hit opposition, that's going to produce discouragement. But we forget. We forget as those little pieces of opposition chip away at us that it degrades our relationship sometimes with each other. And sometimes if it goes far enough, it degrades our relationship with God. Opposition can come against us in such a way That the enemy can use it for his advantage. God knows that we're prone to discouragement. God knows that opposition is a reality in our world. So his word is littered with encouragement for us. In Acts 18, you're going to see Paul in the pit of despair. Not a person you would think of who's a discouraged person. But before we go to Acts 18, I want to weave together with you from Isaiah 40, an encouragement from God. You'll see it on the screen, but let me read it to you. It says this in Isaiah 40, 29. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get weary, they will walk... They will walk and not become weary. They will run and not get tired. What's the key to finding that kind of strength from God? He says to do something. Those who what, church? Those who wait upon the Lord. We're going to see Paul engaged in some degree of waiting. It might surprise you, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, to see that some of God's most choice servants despaired greatly when opposition came against them. And they endured severe despair. Let me show you an example of that. This one comes from the Old Testament. Let's see if you know who wrote this. Numbers chapter 11, verse 15 says this, I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me. Who said that? Moses, yeah. Sounds like he had a bad day, right? Okay. It wasn't just a bad day, it was a bad week, a bad month, a bad series of events because the people of Israel were constantly living in rebellion against God. Moses said, I'm done, take me out. Joshua had similar feelings. Let's see what Joshua said. Joshua chapter 7, verse 7. Why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites. To destroy us? Elijah. This guy went from the peak of success to the pit of despair. If you were here this summer, you heard me teach on that in the month of July. Job, he cursed his own birthday and complained bitterly to God. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet in the Bible because he have watched things crumbling constantly around him. Well, Paul is no exception to that. There's a principle of why. There's a principle that lays through all of this. When God opens doors, and he does, he opens doors for every one of us, When God opens doors, the enemy is working to close those doors. And he works hard to do it sometimes. Many times through discouragement. It's one of his favorite tools. In Acts 18, you're going to find Paul at a low point because the work is incredibly grueling. If you've been part of the study, you know that Paul has been in city after city after city. And when he seems to have a high point, like healing a demon-possessed girl, as a response to it, he's beat and he's publicly flogged and then thrown into prison. Leaving that city because he's chased out of town, he goes to the next city and he's chased out of that town. We saw him last time we were together in Athens. And in Athens, he's laughed out of the city as he tries to defend who Jesus is before the intellectuals of the day. Well, he goes on a 53-mile walk and he ends up in Corinth. And in Corinth, you find a city that is a place that it's a really hard environment to be a believer in. To be a follower of Jesus in first century Corinth was a major challenge, let alone for somebody who is a church planter like Paul. Here's a little background on Corinth at that time. Major metropolitan area. 200,000 people living in the city. And within that city, there were a lot of people coming in and moving and going. Rome had established governmental power there. And so because they had a governmental seat there, there were dignitaries who were coming and going let alone all the sailors who were coming and going, because on the east side was an ocean, and on the west side was an ocean. Corinth sat on a peninsula. So sailors would come in from the east side, they would dock, unload their merchandise carried across the city, and reload it to the west side. Well, that caused them to have places to stay overnight while they were in town. They didn't want to sail the hundred miles around the bottom of the peninsula. And then Europe was sending all of their trade from the north down through Corinth into Greece through the south. So it was right in the hub of the center. And when you have a major metropolitan area with a very large population and a popular tourist destination where people like to go on vacation, you've got money and you've got leisure and you've got a mixture of poor morals and that becomes a recipe for wickedness. And that's what Corinth is. I don't know what you think of when you think of Las Vegas today, but immediately people, when they think of Las Vegas, they, they tend to think of it as Sin City, right? It, it's got a reputation. There's a reason they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Because of its reputation for things that mm, less than scrupulous. Well, that's the reputation of Corinth. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen at Dr. Lenski's comment. He's a theologian that lived in the early 1900s. He said Corinth was a wicked city. The very term Corinthian came to mean wicked. To Corinthianize meant to practice whoredom. Sounds like a city that needs Jesus, right? Okay, that's who they are. They, when I hear those kind of things, I think of an environment like that, those people need Jesus. Well, that's where Paul's at. But what's his condition upon arriving? He's made this 53-mile journey. Well, he reports what his own condition was like because after he left Corinth, he sent a letter back to them, a letter that you have in your hands today called First and Second Corinthians. It's his letter to the people at the church at Corinth. This is what he said about how he was feeling at that time at 1 Corinthians 2.3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Doesn't sound like powerhouse Paul, does it? Sounds like somebody who's discouraged. He's physically ill besides his mental discouragement. Why? Because of the beatings, the things that he's endured, the prison time. And when you mix physical weakness with mental weakness, that compounds the discouragement all the more. And then add to that struggle, he's alone. His intensity is magnified because Paul is alone. Silas and Timothy are up in Macedonia. So Paul finds himself in this major metropolitan area trying to do the things that God has asked him to do. We know that our God will not leave him in that condition. But he didn't know that in that moment. Our God is the God who comforts the depressed. Did you know that about God? Second Corinthians says that about God. It's one of his attributes. He comes to those who are depressed and he encourages those. So God's not going to leave Paul crushed. Go with me to Acts 18 and verse 1, and it says this, After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. See, right away God knows that Paul needs someone. He needs someone to help him with this load. And so he finds these two individuals who become closest friends of his, Aquila and Priscilla. As a matter of fact, eventually, they lay their life down for him. They put their life on the line. Now, there's some details here that are really important to history. It, Dr. Luke has done us the favor of mentioning Claudius's name. Claudius is the emperor of Rome. He, he's the Caesar who's ruling over the Roman Empire at this period of time. And Dr. Luke just inserts his name in here. Why does he mention this to us? it's very important to understand that historically we have information from rome outside of the bible that helps us to understand the authenticity of the bible in 49 a.d claudius issued a decree from the roman empire in which he banned all of the jews from the roman capital city he said i'm done with you guys i want you out of here leave why would he do that Well, there's a historian that lived in the first century who was actually an official historian of the Roman Empire, and he wrote down the reason. He said for us, you'll see it on the screen, he says, as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished them from Rome. The name that you see up there, Crestus, is the Latin name for Christ, Christus, Christus. And so, as individuals were coming into the Roman Empire and explaining who Jesus is and preaching Jesus, the Jews responded to it by saying, No, this is not right. We don't want him as the Messiah. Well, it caused riots, and riots were sparking in the city. And finally, the Caesar said, Enough. Just be gone with all of you. Well, that leads to Aquila and Priscilla relocating to Corinth. And in Corinth, they meet Paul, and they're both new to the city, and they discover they're both tent makers. If you're a tent maker in the first century, you're someone who's punching leather. Leather was used to form the seams of the tent along with sheep's wool. So Paul's spending his day driving tools through leather, making holes through the stitches can run through it. It's a hard, hard job all day long working with canvas, working with sheep hide, and working with leather in order to earn a living. Verse 4 tells us there's a Jewish settlement in Corinth. Go with me to verse 4. It says, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Just so you understand the setting, this is like hanging out at a Bigby and engaging in table conversation with somebody you don't even know. He's having reasoning with them, meaning dialogue. It's just like a Q&A thing. Paul's just going up to people's table, sitting down and beginning to talk to them about who Jesus is, and his goal is to convince them To explain Jesus, go with me to verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What a huge encouragement to see his friends. If you're in the pit of despair, it's a great thing to have your friends come around you, right? It's kind of participatory here at New Hope, all right? It's a good thing to have your friends show up, Right? When you're discouraged, you want to see your friends. Well, on top of that, his friends not only show up, but they bring financial aid with them. If you read Philippians and Thessalonians, you see that when they left Macedonia, they're coming down and they're bringing money so Paul can go full time. He doesn't have to spend Monday through Friday making tents now. He can really amp it up. And he can go to places where he can talk about Jesus on a regular basis. So here's the second part of the encouragement, not just having the friends show up, but I think for him as the person who planted the church in Macedonia, to hear that that group of people is maturing to such a point where they're willing to bear Paul's burdens and send money to help him do this work that he's been called to do, they're amplifying who Jesus is. Look with me on the screen at Galatians 6.2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, that's what the church in Macedonia is doing. So Paul's got double reason to be encouraged now. His friends have shown up and now there's money from this church that's maturing in Christ. Today, you and I would agree that Paul is probably one of the greatest preachers to have ever lived, right? Okay. L- let's put another component with that though. We would agree that Paul is probably one of the greatest preachers of Jesus who have ever lived, but how far could he have gone alone? Not so far. You can see the discouragement in the first part of the chapter. He's there alone, and he's discouraged. But as God begins bringing these pieces together, God sends his friends, God sends his resources. When he needs it the most, what's Paul been doing? He's been waiting on the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. He's just been doing what he's been told to do. Hanging out in Corinth, making tents, trying to earn a living, waiting for God to meet the needs. So the result is in verse 5. The result is he gets to devote himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews who Jesus is. Well, how do the Jews respond? Well, that's verse 6. Verse 6 says, "...but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean.'" From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Resisted and blasphemed are two words you might want to circle in your own Bible if you do that because they're very specifically mentioned by Luke for this reason. Resisted is a military term, and it's a Greek word that's in your notes this morning if you pulled those out of your bulletin, but you also see it on the screen. It's this word antitaso, and it means a military uh, arrangement. It's, it's actually a military term. It comes from the world of war, and it meant that these individuals had arrayed themselves in such a way that they would push back and fight against Paul. It's not just a gentle resistance, it's an intense resistance. They're pushing back against his teaching, the things he says about Jesus. So that's why you get the blaspheme word. It's the most serious accusation. They're blaspheming the name of Jesus. So if you look up the word blaspheme in the dictionary, you're going to see that it it says to slander someone or to rail on them. We might say today to miss them. It's totally disregarding who Jesus is, disrespecting him, having no interest in who he is. So Paul recognizes it's futile to throw pearls before swine. Jesus said that himself. So he shakes out his garments. What's going on? Well, for a Jew who was coming into Israel, if they'd been out in Gentile territory, they literally would take their sandals off when they got to the border of Israel. And they would smack the dust off their sandals so that they wouldn't carry any of the dust from the Gentile world into Israel. And then if they were really intense about it, they would literally shake their robes and shake the dust off from their robes, indicating they wanted nothing to do with the environment that they had just left. Well, that's what you find Paul doing. He's going before individuals who understand exactly what he's doing. He's saying, fine, I'm done with you. And he shakes out his robe, knocking all the dust off, saying in an infuriating way, I want to separate myself from you. This is a pretty shocking statement to say I'm done with you and then he goes to the next level and say your blood's on your own head. Why make that statement? Why make it so intense? Because these opponents of his are now fully responsible for what they do with the information that they've been given on Jesus. To have blood on your hands is a picture that comes from Ezekiel chapter 33. It speaks of a watchman who sat upon the watchtower on the city wall looking for enemy coming from the horizon while the city slept behind him. And if a watchman was doing his job, if he saw the enemy approaching, he would warn the entire city, letting them know there's danger coming. But if he fell asleep at his post and didn't do his job, the blood of the city was on his hands. He was responsible. But Paul doesn't say the blood is on your hands. He said the blood is on your own head. Why does he use that language? Because if the blood is on your own head, then you are responsible for the information that you had. In other words, they had the opportunity to be saved, but they've refused it. So Paul's saying, I'm the watchman. I warned you that danger is coming. Judgment is coming. You'll have to stand before God one day. What are you going to do with it? But you refuse it, so the blood is on your own head. I'm going to the Gentiles. It's no longer possible to work with you. Move forward with me into verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Tidius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Verse 7 begins a series of really bad events for those who are in the synagogue who have been pushing back against Paul because things are beginning to cascade here. First he's shaking the dust out of his robe saying, I'm done with you. And then he moves in next door into the house of Titius, justice. Now, justice is a Gentile, a Roman, and he's obviously interested in the things of God because we're told he's a worshiper of God. But he happens to own real estate right next door to the synagogue. So this is like Rite Aid building across the street from Walgreens, right? Okay, he's tracking Burger Kings next door to McDonald's. Paul's aware there's customers potentially coming in there. I wonder if I can take them away. So he puts himself in a very geographic location that would allow him to intersect with these individuals. Well, verse 8 tells you the outcome of that. The staggering news, it says in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard and were believing and being baptized. Now for Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, to become a believer in Jesus is just astonishing. And it's got to send shockwaves through the community. On top of that, the Corinthians These wild livers, these party animals, as Michael says, these ragers who are having a great time in the evening, are now beginning to discover who Jesus is. Paul indicates that the church in Corinth became a megachurch. When you read the book of Corinthians, you begin seeing that it grew to such proportions that it actually fractionalized and had to move out into various factions. Because it was so large, they couldn't meet in one place anymore. Now, those who are opposing Jesus are watching this, and the agitation is intensifying. Crispus is now following Jesus. Now, just as we discussed in the very beginning, when more opportunity comes your way, you can expect more opposition. When God opens doors, Satan works to close doors. You get the very clear impression when you look at verse 8 and verse 9 that Paul is now treading in dangerous territory. The balance between verse 8 and verse 9 is a shift because he moves into fear mode. You'll see that come out in just a moment. When God in your life, when God gives you opportunity, when He increases opportunity for you to represent Him, you can anticipate increased opposition. It goes hand in hand. Paul emphasized that in 1 Corinthians 16.9. Look with me on the screen at this. He says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, And there are many adversaries. See, the two go hand in hand, right? God opens the door, great opportunities, and there's many adversaries who are coming against me. Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying, "The devil never kicks a dead horse." Spurgeon is an old theologian that died back in the early 1900s. He lived in the 1800s, but that's true. Satan's not going to waste his time with a dead animal. You can't get on a dead horse and make it go anyplace. You're not going to kick it in the side. He goes after those who are actually making progress. So we understand that Satan is coming against Paul and Paul is beginning to struggle. He's hit the wall that many of you have hit. Some of you are there right now. Paul's struggling with whether or not he continues to stay at Corinth. Why should he? Why should he continue to stay? Because every place he's gone, he's had difficulty. Think about the cities he's been in. Philippi, Berea, Athens, Every city he goes into, he's met the opposition, and darkness seems to push him out of town. Why would he expect Corinth to be any different? So here's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with fear of the known and fear of the unknown. You facing that this morning? Fear of the things that you know might happen? Fear of the things you're not sure if they're going to happen? And you find yourself consumed with that? Think about what Paul's up against. These individuals are desperate to stop the expanding wave of belief that's sweeping through this area of Corinth. Soon, they're going to drag Paul into court. They want to see him go on trial, but before they can do that, Jesus is going to intervene, and he intercedes with encouragement, the same encouragement that is available for you this morning. Look with me on the screen at what Jesus says to him in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. This is one of six visions that Paul received in the book of Acts, and they always came at the most crucial moment, when Paul needed most to hear from God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you need to hear from God. You need to pay special attention to what's coming next. I want you to notice that God does not prevent Paul from going on trial. As you watch these verses unfold, you're going to see that he actually has to go through trial. He actually is persecuted. God doesn't prevent him from going on trial. What God does is he says, I'm going to be with you in the middle of it, Paul, because you're going to have an opportunity to glorify me. I'll be with you in the darkest moments. So don't give up even when it seems dark. I am with you. So God shows up, it says in verse 9, He speaks to Paul directly, do not be afraid any longer. Would you not say that that's encouragement at the highest level? Would you not love to hear God say that directly to you? He does. He does in His Word. Paul heard it in a night vision. Don't be afraid, Paul. I'm with you. How do words diminish fear? Well, for one, it's the source of who it's coming from, right? But if I'm Paul, I'm thinking immediately, wow, Jesus knows me that well? He knows what I'm thinking? He knows what I'm processing? Jesus knows what's going on inside of me? See, God is speaking directly to the issue that's going on in Paul's heart. He's addressing the mental battle that's raging. And he knows exactly what Paul is thinking. Don't be afraid, Paul. Don't stop speaking even if you want to. I know what you're feeling. I know you. I understand you. I've got your back. So verse 9, as a result, go on speaking. Do not be silent. In your notes this morning, I gave you four reasons that God amplifies in chapter 18 to to not back down. But I'm only going to speak to two of them right now. Let, Let me show you the first one. The first one is that God commands it. who's the master, church? God. Okay, let's say it like we mean it. God's the master, right? Yeah, okay, so that means we're the servant. If God's the master, we're the servant. So if God commands something, it must mean that He intends us to do it. So when God commands Paul to go on speaking, He doesn't mean if you feel like it, Paul. I want you to keep doing it. But the second one really speaks to me, and maybe it's going to speak to you. God reorients you. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you personally, Paul. He spoke similar words to Joshua. Let me show you an example of that. It says this in Joshua chapter 1. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Here's verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here's the problem with us. It's very tempting in 2015 to say, yeah, Mark, I know, but... That's like Paul and Joshua. I mean, they're Bible guys, right? God says He's with them. How can we have that same degree of assurance that He's with us? It's very tempting to think God's got the back of these super saints. What about me and where I'm at? God's promises are to all believers. Right, church? God's promises are to all believers. Jesus, Matthew 28, at the moment of the ascension, I'm going to be with you Jesus, Hebrews 13, 5, I will not leave you or forsake you. I'm not going to leave you on your own. So let me ask you a question, just a little reality check here this morning. With God's presence, can Paul accomplish whatever God has called him to do? Yes or no? Okay, let's say like everybody in the room believes it, all right? With God's presence, can Paul do whatever God has called him to do? Yes. Okay. With God's presence, can you do whatever God has called you to do? Okay. It's really easy to say at 11.45 in the morning, right? When opposition produces discouragement and discouragement keeps chipping away at us, that's when we need to remember Hebrews 13.5. When Lori and I were on staff at Youth Haven Ranch and we worked with many children from backgrounds, very, very difficult backgrounds. These children that were coming to Youth Haven didn't know the Bible. They'd never been exposed to it before, never probably held it. And we realized we had to help them memorize verses. Hebrews 13.5 was one we made sure every single one of the 3,000 children per year left knowing. And Hebrews 13.5 merely was taught to them in the same way that you can remember it. We had them hold their hands up and we said to the kids, remember this verse. Jesus said, I will never leave Mark nor forsake Mark and lock it in. Can you remember simple words like that? Nine, ten simple words? Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We asked every child to take that promise home with them if they were a follower of Jesus. So the next time you feel alone, claim Hebrews 13.5. God, I know that you're with me. Your word promises it. Claim the presence of the Lord. One of his names is God is with you. The angels show up Christmas day and say to the shepherds, He will be called Emmanuel. God with us. It's his Christmas name. God's with you, church. And he promises to be with you. Now, I don't want to rabbit trail too much off onto what I'm going to go to next, but. I need to do it to help you put together this story as we wrap it up. In verse 10, when God says, I have many people in this city, I really want you to understand what he's saying here. God's communicating to Paul, in Corinth, in this major metropolitan area, Paul, there are those who are appointed to eternal life. They are predestined. They are elected, and yet they have not yet believed. In other words, you've got a job to do, Paul. So in verse 10, you see a balance against verse 6. Paul shakes out his robes and says to the Jews, Fine, I'm going to the Gentiles. I've got work to do with them. God shows up in verse 10 and says, That's right, Paul, you've got work to do. Don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Go to the city. I have many people in the city who don't yet know me. Now some of you may be reading that and saying, "Well, I thought maybe that was talking about Paul's going to have like lots of bodyguards." Well, Paul's got God on his side, so he doesn't need bodyguards, right? But it's great for the fellow believers to be there and the church is growing exponentially. There'll be many people who have Paul's back. But read this the way you need to understand this. Paul is being told, "Paul, you got a job to do. You are the tip of the spear. You've got to get out there." Church, you are the tip of the spear. You are the point of the kingdom in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. You may be the only Jesus this community ever sees. You live in a city equal in size to Corinth. God's speaking directly to Paul about not being discouraged. In the midst of your discouragement, talk to people. Explain about who I am. He's being very, very clear. There are people who belong to the Lord. They're not yet saved. They need to hear the gospel. And how will they hear if you don't tell them? Uh, Rather than trying to figure out election and predestination, that wasn't my purpose this morning. This is a point I don't want to get away from, though. When you look at the issue of predestination or election and, and God knowing who's going to be saved, here's your responsibility. Our responsibility is to make sure that we are among God's elect. That's what He calls us to do. Let me back that up from Scripture. Second Peter 1.10. Peter said this to the church, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, be sure you're saved yourself. Deal with that issue first. Let's finish the story. It says this in verse 11. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So it looks like his strength is fully renewed, right? He's ready to go. He settles in for 18 months. The opponents are watching him in frustration as more and more people come to Jesus. And so they become desperate. They make an attempt to get Roman to stop Paul. Go with me to verse 12. But while Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. A what law? Roman law or Jewish law. Now, it's very interesting that Dr. Luke mentions Galile at this point because he knows that we need that piece of information in order to understand what's going on here. Because Galile has just been made proconsul; he's new to the area. Matter of fact, Roman history says that he was made proconsul in 51 A.D. and he served for a couple of years there. So he's new to the bench; he's a new judge in the territory, and he's an intelligent man. Seneca is his brother. Now, you may not be familiar with Seneca, but you're probably familiar with Nero, right? Nero is the future Caesar of Rome. Seneca is the tutor of Nero. Right now, Claudius is on the throne. Claudius is about to turn the throne over to Nero. Seneca is his tutor. Seneca is the brother of Galile. Look at what he says about his brother. Galileo is an intelligent person who hated flattery and was blessed, blessed with an unaffectedly pleasant personality. So you've got a guy who doesn't want anybody kissing up to him, but he's really intelligent and he's very likable. And so he knows when people are trying to flatter him. That's important information as you move forward with this. We're told that in verse 12, he has a judgment seat, which is this raised stone platform Look on the screen and you're going to see an image, an archaeological dig, recently unearthed in Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth. It are these blue marble stones that you see, see laying at the bottom of the wall. Archaeologists are unearthing the Bema Seat, the place where Galileo actually sat, where he ruled over the city of Corinth. Uh, on this Bema Seat, he had the authority to bring people to public trial, an open-air court. The Jews are thinking this way. They're thinking, we've got the arrival of a new proconsul in town. This gives us hope. Rome might declare this Christian thing illegal. Maybe we can finally chase Paul out of town because there's a new judge on the bench. Every court case matters. And here's an example of why if the accusers receive a favorable verdict, They can cite Galileo's decision as precedent for banning Christianity in the Roman Empire and doing away with it completely. So they're bringing an accusation. This man is persuading individuals contrary to the law. Do you notice they're really ambiguous? They don't say what law. They're not sure who this Galileo is, so they think maybe they can trick him. Judaism is officially viewed by Rome as a sanctioned religion. Christianity is viewed as a sect of Judaism. So for now, it's tolerated by Rome. But if Gallio rules in favor of the accusation, Christianity can be banned throughout the empire. Let's finish the story, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter, or a matter of a wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourself. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. See, Galiel is not easily deceived, is he? He's just like his brother said. He's an intelligent individual. And immediately he sees the real issue. It's not the application of Roman law. It's about this religious, legalistic argument. So there's nothing more frustrating than a preacher who can't preach. And Paul is in that moment. He's about to speak. Paul has never been silenced in his life. And in this moment, Galio cuts him off. He's just opening his mouth to pull his sermon out. And Galio cuts him off. He says, there's no need. You don't have to make a defense. You don't have to make an argument. He renders a summary judgment. He throws the case out. He says, this is an issue of semantics. I have no issue. So those who are watching the trial become furious. Watch their reaction. Verse 17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. Here's the way I'm interpreting this. The fellow Jews are angry that this leader of the synagogue has failed to present the argument well, and they're venting their frustration. So they take hold of him. Well, who is this Sosthenes? Well, Paul led Crispus to Jesus. So they needed a replacement, so they put Sosthenes in place. And Sosthenes now has bungled the argument, and he has failed, and so they begin beating him because he's done so poorly. As the leader of the synagogue, he had the responsibility to prosecute the case. Do you not find irony in this story that the chief prosecutor ends up getting the very beating that he wanted Paul to get? What a turn of events in this situation. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll see that that same Sosinus becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. He eventually yields his life. And then the Jews have to go back out and find another leader of the synagogue because they keep losing him to Jesus. Let's finish the story. Verse 18 ends it. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. We're going to leave him out there in the ocean until next week. I want you to hear this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're a person who's walking by faith. We just celebrated all of that in song this morning. Walking by faith is not easy. No one should tell you that it is. Walking by faith means responding to opportunity. And God will bring opportunities your way. Walking by faith means responding to opportunity even in the midst of opposition. Even when opposition produces discouragement, and it will, it'll keep chipping away at you. And that's when God says, even in the dark moments, don't stop. The truth of the matter is this, church, there is no easy place to be a Christ follower. If it's easy for you, something's wrong. There is no easy place. This is written to us from Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Because when God opens doors, the enemy seeks to close the doors. And that opposition produces discouragement. But our God is faithful, right church? Our God is faithful to His promises. So He says, even though your young men stumble and fall, Even though your vigorous young men fail badly, those who wait upon the Lord will see a Silas come walking through their door and a Timothy and an offering from a fledgling church. And you don't have to punch leather forever. God will allow court cases to be won that you never thought you could win. You'll even see leaders of the enemy become followers of Jesus Christ. That's God's words to us from Isaiah 40. Read it with that in mind of what you just saw in the story. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 40:29. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Friends, you are the tip of the spear. You need to be reminded of that, even in the midst of moments that are dark in your world, when you feel like you're coming up against the opposition over and over and over again. You're the tent maker. You're just like Paul in the workplace. And God will use you there. But I want you to go out the door this morning remembering two things. God has many people Many people in this community who do not yet belong to him, he will use you to reach them. Remain faithful, even in the dark moments. Even in the moments when you feel like I've got to back off because I just can't take this any longer. That's when God says, You can do this. That encouragement is available to you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're faithfully following him. Do you believe it? All right, let's pray. Father, we've examined Your Word, we've looked at it closely, and now we ask that You would do the part that You do best, which is apply it to our life, that You would use it in such a way that You would cause us to be motivated for Your kingdom, to not back down. Father, I I pray for courage, I pray for boldness for this church, I pray for individuals who are this morning struggling with discouragement. We're wondering whether or not they can even see their way through to tomorrow or the end of the week. You know the circumstances, Father. You know the events. You know what every individual in this room is up against, just like you know Paul. And you speak immediately to the need that we have. So, Father, I not only pray for courage, I pray for the absence of discouragement, that you would bring encouragement And that you would strengthen those who belong to you. Bless them for being here today. For examining your word. God, send them out in your power and in your strength. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.